Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. guest today is Ann Burns, and our topic is Losing a Child and a Firefighter Husband in the Aftermath of 9-11, Broken Heart, Broken Health. For many years, Ann had an idyllic life. She was happily married and had four healthy children. That changed suddenly when her son Jimmy was killed in a crash in 1984. While working full-time, she facilitated support groups, got her master's in counseling, and developed spiritual retreats for bereaved parents. Her journey led to Calvary Hospital where she became Director of Bereavement Services until the death of her husband, Kevin, a New York City fire chief. Anne's an author, avid golfer, and volunteers her time in bereavement services. Welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you very much, Heidi. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. And know we were talking a little bit, and Heidi had talked to you about the Virginia Tech massacre. And in terms of all the loss you've had, I wondered how you were dealing with all this. Well, I think you brought up a very good point about needing to take a break from it. Um, I felt myself um, being inundated by all the um, the news uh, news releases and television and everything, and it, it traumatizes you again and to a certain degree uh, and brings you back to you know a very painful place. You naturally want to your heart goes out to the, the families and friends and colleagues of um, the victims. But um, it also does traumatize you, right? And it takes you right back to all all the events. Now, you, <clears throat> when your son died, uh, Jimmy, in a car crash, yeah. um, that is that sudden death. And and uh, Scott, uh, our uh, Heidi's brother, and my son also was that sudden death. So I don't know what it is to have some a child murdered, but I certainly do know what that suddenness. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's in the blink of an eye, your whole life changes. Um, I remember that night in particular, we were sitting around. Um, my husband was studying actually for the chief's exam, mm-hmm. and um, it was about 11:30. And um, I heard the door open, and I thought, "Oh, okay, they're coming home." And six people came into my house, and um, I saw the priest. And being married to a New York City firefighter. I, I was always told that, um, you know, once you see the priest, you know it's over. Mm-hmm. So I knew my my oldest boy came in. I could account for my other son. He was in bed. My daughter was in bed. And once I saw the priest, I knew immediately that um, that my son had been killed or died or something had terrible happened. Mm-hmm. And um, it changed it changed my life forever. In the blink of an eye, oh, yeah. In the blink of an eye, yeah. How about you, Heidi, for the siblings out there who've had that sudden... Um, I think, as Anne said, it's, you know, you're going through your life and living a life where you feel you're is safe and you're safe and you have kind of a game plan of what that's going to look like and think your grandparents are going to die first and then your parents and then your siblings and all of a sudden you get a call in the middle of the night or someone shows up at your door at some point and in a second every belief you've ever held about death is turned on its upside down. Yeah. Right, Anne? I mean, I mean, you know, my grandparents were still living. My 80-year-old grandfather was still yeah. living. It's not supposed to be like this. It's, yeah. This is not the way life is supposed to happen. I, I stepped out of my house the next morning, and I couldn't get over that the sun was up and that buses were running and people were walking, and it was as if my life stopped. And that I, is 
assumed that the rest point. of the world would stop, but it didn't. That is such a good point because I it feels very strange whenever my mom and I talk about the weather on the show. It's like, oh, hi, how is the weather? Because I remember so well, and when my brother died the day after, mm. I woke up and I was almost angry that it was sunny and nice out. Oh, absolutely. It felt like it should have been raining in a thunderstorm, right? Yeah, yeah. I think for the longest time you're, you're, you're so traumatized, you're numb. And um, I think that's what gets you through the very beginning of it. And yeah. that's what I think would, you know, is helping the people from uh, Virginia Tech. That shock and numbness. Well, one of the right. things that they're dealing with, and, and we've talked to different folks um, who've had this happen, is that they didn't know what had happened and didn't know whether it was their child. And we've uh, actually had people um, who found out on the television that oh. their child had died because the plane went down or whatever. And uh, I think some of your 9-11 families, Heidi, and, and, and you, some you knowing about yeah. them too. Yeah. Some of, and Anne probably knows this since her, she's part of the firefighter community as well. Anna, some of the families after 9-11 didn't know that their loved ones had died until they watched the news. Right. And that's a horrible way to find out. It certainly is. I know uh, a friend of mine, um, her husband was a chief and he was trapped. And he came out alive. He, he actually got out of there. But he was trapped for hours. And luckily she didn't know it until... You know, like right before they got him out. Mm-hmm. Very scary. So I can only imagine what the families of Virginia Tech were going through, waiting and wondering, okay, is my child okay or not? Yeah, I remember Craig Scott's father talking, Daryl Scott, um, on on one of our shows about how uh, because they do a lockdown of the whole place because they want to make sure there are no other shooters or they don't know or you know the confusion is pure hell for the families. Yeah. Very, very difficult. Well, and I wanted I wanted to ask you a little bit about your your son died and then your husband died. I wondered, you know, how does one cope with all this? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, it was twenty years between my son's death and my husband's death. Um, coping with my son's death was um, an example of pure. I don't know what you would even call it. Uh, just clinging to to life when you don't want to, you know, really be part of life anymore. It's just putting one foot in front of the other. Um, I did, when looking back now, I can see that I, I was helping myself all along, but I didn't realize it because I was, I was open to all the support that was out there. People were um, extremely generous to us uh, when, when I know uh, Jimmy died in November, and I remember someone had offered us a ski house in December, you know, to just go away mm-hmm. and just get away from the everyday pain. You take the pain with you, mm-hmm. but it's different when you're in a different location. You can breathe a little easier, I think. Right. So, and, so being open to that. Well, we were talking a little bit about the shooting at Virginia Tech and um, how devastating it's been for everyone with the 32 students and faculty that were killed. And uh, again, our heart goes out the show. Uh, we understand that you folks out there really need to take care of yourself, and that's one of the things we're trying to emphasize a bit on the show today is how we've dealt with it uh, with life and loss and, and how you need to be taking care of yourself now. So, Anne, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how your husband, um, how you feel Jimmy's death, your son's death in 1984, and then your husband was a firefighter, and he was down at Ground Zero, right? He was no at that point. He he his 
he was off that day. Okay. Um, and the fellow who took his place got killed, and five in the house and 19 in the battalion, so he really saw a lot. He went down that day. He went down right. afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, um, his, his lungs were bad already, so he did fire duty. He didn't go to the dig. Mm-hmm. So now, how did he have any guilt uh, feelings about the whole thing, or how I did think, he? You know, the fire department—they're they're a brotherhood, and they—they mm-hmm. they keep um, their feelings to themselves a lot. They're a very macho group. Um, but I know he did. He we we did talk about that, and he he always told me not to feel guilty and not to feel um, bitter or angry if anything happened to him on the job because he loved the job so much. But um, it affected him because there were so many, I think there were 343 men lost their lives and just within the fire department, and he knew half of them. He had been on the job 39 years, so, and he had you know, been in a lot of different houses, and um, he knew a lot of them personally. So um, I think he did have a survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people to lose at the same yeah. time. I remember him going to three funerals in one day and then working a 24-hour tour. It, it took a, I think it took a toll on his health. I think he was collateral damage from, from 9-11, mm-hmm. and, and it affected, you know, the whole family. So what about these family members now that, that have been so much trauma with Virginia Tech? What would you suggest to them as far as dealing with this? I think the first thing I would say to them is, you know, try to be kind to yourself and try not to um, put too much expectation on yourself. It's very hard when you're in a state of shock and numbness to um, you just go do things by rote. And um, um, I would say to them, take time to breathe, uh, take time to do things that um, would give you relaxation and, uh, and be open to the help that's out there. Talk to other bereaved parents. In, in particular, I, you know, I feel an affinity with the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, to, um, you know, get in touch, see if you can. They're getting a lot of support now, and that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how long that support will last. but Yeah, that's one of, one of the issues. And what area um, you live in, one of the things that's going to happen is these students came there, and their families are from different areas. Right. So um, with the 9-11 families, like with you, Heidi, people are joined. There's more of a community of loss, which in some ways is good, in some ways is difficult, because um, Heidi and I have talked before about when the same thing happens to people at the same time, um, you don't see the progression. You don't see people who are a little further out, you know, that, right. that gives you and a you hope. Need- you need examples. You need to have a, a, a life ring. In, I mean, a, mm-hmm. you know, a life vest or something. A lifeline, yeah. It is like a lifeline. You're right. Oh, yeah. See, okay, Anne's made it. Anne's still surviving. I can do it because right now a lot of people that are listening feel like, I can't go on. I can't yeah. do this. I'm in too much pain. I don't want to go on. And you believe in your heart of hearts that you will never feel any better than uh, you know, than you're feeling today, and you'll not laugh ever again. Mm-hmm. But you do, you know. And I had actually the compassionate friends. There was a group up in a county for me, and she was my lifeline. Her name was Judy, and um, I could call her at any time. I could. I, there was meetings once a month. Um, I went for a couple of months, and that's you know. And then I really kind of started a group down here um, because it was so far away, and it was. Um, 
you know, difficult to drive. Well, yeah, I, I think that this is a great time to uh, go on the Compassionate Friends website and find out if there's a, and it's the CompassionateFriends.org website, and we also have chapters listed on thegriefblog.com, and find out if there's a chapter in your area. And also, if there isn't a chapter in your area and you're 18 months out, you could start a chapter of Compassionate right. Friends. Like Ann did. I mean, Ann, yeah. how far along were you before you started uh, your I own was, chapter? It was, uh, it was six months. Mm-hmm. Wow. But I had but I had a priest who was very, very supportive to mm-hmm. my husband and I and my family, and we started a group in the, the church. You know, we would do uh, No, actually, I think it was in my home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, um, I mean, he was just very um, supportive and encouraging and enabling us to do it, encouraging us to do it, to, to be with other bereaved parents. And we needed to we needed to borrow each other's courage to go on because at that point, you know, you don't feel like you are going to make it through. So. I like that, borrowing each other's courage to go on. Yeah, that's yeah. really nice. And the other thing is, at, last night I was so struck again by how crazy people feel in the first year. It's frightening. Uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have thoughts that are so alien to what you normally, the way you normally think. But to be in a group with other parents who are going through this, you normalize those feelings. You can say, oh, my God, I saw a kid who looked like my son, and I wanted to run up and kiss him or hold him or grab him. And, you know, people would think, she's crazy, <laughs> you know. But mm-hmm. another bereaved parent would say, well, sure, I understand that. I mean, I saw somebody that looked like my son. And, Absolutely. Um, felt the same way. That yearning and searching. And last night, um, I was telling Heidi, we had uh, three bereaved siblings in, in the group with the parents, and it was really absolutely phenomenal hearing them talk about what they needed yeah. and, and how they felt overlooked. Well, I love well, how they talked to the parents about this. Yeah, the parents were sitting there, and the siblings were, they were adult siblings, were able to say this with the parents there. And I know, Anne, you have some surviving children. Yeah. And they they felt um, they felt abandoned by us. I think um, they felt. I mean, I felt my grief was so overwhelming mm-hmm. that I knew they were taken care of, but um, I couldn't focus on anything else but myself. How how old were the children at that time? The oldest was nineteen. When then, your son died. Yeah, when he died. Uh-huh. And then Jimmy was seventeen. Mm-hmm. Brian was fifteen, and Aaron was six. Mm-hmm. So I had. Um, a little one that I had to get up and get out of bed for, but the others could take care of themselves, and I was just focusing on getting her washed and dressed into school, and that was the best I could do for a long right. time. Well, like you said, you do the best you can. I mean, parents right. are so overwhelmed by their grief, and I think we as siblings and children, we know that, so we don't want to cause you any more pain, and we kind of try to keep exactly. our grief oftentimes to ourselves so that we don't cause you more right. pain. You know you're going and that's to not good, you know, really. I mean, everyone's entitled to their grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everyone should be, um, you know, encouraged to express their grief. But many times, adolescents don't mm-hmm. uh, refuse to, you know, they never saw their parents in such a condition before, and it scares them. It, it is scary. Like you know, yeah. And uh, and groups for teens are amazing. Bereavement groups, and Anne, I know you've worked in the field um, professionally, yeah. and it's hard to get the kids there. Once they're there, it's an amazing place because oh, it is. That was one of my other proudest. Teams. That was one of my proudest moments when I um, when I worked in Calvary and I felt we were the uh, we were helping the first generation of kids to ex- to be able to express their grief in a positive way and not to turn it into you know 
anger and arguments and fighting and who knows what else down the road. This was giving these kids tools to work with and a place to express their, the feelings that they were having regarding the death of their, you know, brother or sister or parent or whatever. But um, it was just an amazing experience to, to be able to help these kids and and it made me feel very accomplished. And for the parents out there that are listening and that are concerned about their kids right now, what kind of things would you? What kind of things worked? You said um, group sessions, group with other kids, having somebody who's you know a little vocal in the group that will open up and and encourage mm-hmm. the other kids to open up, or um, writing uh, writing a play, writing a story, writing a letter mm-hmm. to you know the the deceased child. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that, writing a letter to your, your brother or sister that died. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, also had nice a, idea. we also had a one-week um, day camp in Calvary. Where, I mean, people were just so generous that the, the, the budget was, I could do anything I wanted. We would take these kids by bus upstate New York for a week and um, have a camping exercise. But there was always, everything they did had a way to express some grief. And I know one time we had... Um, we had a bunch of the kids come together, and uh, we had them. All, we gave them all balloons, and we had a balloon launch. And it was such a powerful experience for these kids. You know, we would tell them, you know, think of a message to send to your loved one, and they, you know, that that was one of the um, one of the great things that we got back on the evaluations that they loved that. Well, um, we wanted to again give our condolences to those who are suffering through the shootings at Virginia Tech and we, our heart goes out to you all and we hope that you will take care of yourself and that you will find, as we've said, groups and uh, places that you can talk about the things that have happened to you. We hope that the siblings will get help, that friends will get help. I think sometimes friends are lost, don't you, Anne? Anne yeah. and Heidi? Yeah. I do. Um, I know that um, a lot of my son's friends um, were able to get together and, um, you know, talk about it. So that they were helped like that. But, a lot, you know, many times that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you were saying before about the people being in different areas, about uh, the parents and everything of the Virginia Tech children. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that you, you talked about before was, you know, different ways of coping. And today in this this uh, internet world that we have, we're blessed to have um, to be able to email one another, uh, which is a great way of, of sharing your feelings. And um, I just wanted to bring up that I I still belong to a group um, of mothers. I think it's called Mothers United or something. But there are about six or seven women, and uh, we all lost a child at different times. And there's a woman from Nebraska, there's a woman from Ireland, there's a woman from uh, North or South Carolina. We're all over the country. But um, keep one in Oklahoma, and um, we keep... um, you know, writing to one another. Now it's not as much as in the beginning, but um, it's the email is a great way of of uh, getting another area of support to yourself. That is such a good point. Yeah, and, and one of the things that we Heidi and I are very interested in. If you hear shows that you like and really touch your heart, if you will email us, we can probably put you in touch with the person who did the show. Right, Heidi? That's a good point. We can hook people up if they feel all alone and isolated with other people. We've done it before. Um, and I love the Internet, like you're saying, and because it is a virtual community. We can log on in the middle of the night. My mom and I have talked about creating a place to grieve online through the Library of Life, through MySpace. There's a lot of venues to do it. Library of Life is a wonderful resource where you can log on and see people that have lit candles for your loved ones. I love seeing that people have lit candles for Scott that they're thinking about him. 
places to go on and, and that's right on our blog, the grief blog, and uh, Scott's site on Library of Life. And also, we're very interested if you want to send pictures of your family or kids or tell a story, we'd love to put that on the grief blog. And going on to our blog and just saying, look, I'm having a bad night, I'm having a bad moment, and hooking up with other people through the Internet. It's very powerful. And, uh, of, of course, the uh, Compassionate Friends has chat rooms. Yes, and, and I've, I've used them many times and referred people to them. Yeah, so so you can go on those chat rooms also. So one of the things that I get concerned about too, Anne and Heidi, is um, I, I know when Scott was killed, there were um, the car blew up and these two boys burned to death, and there was a car behind them that stopped, and those men got out and ran to the car and they saw the boys in the car and they saw the car blow up and they couldn't get him out and I just wonder about that I don't know what we would call it collateral damage of those individuals who really never get any support yeah that's I never thought of it that way but you're absolutely true they were traumatized um, as well as uh, as well as the uh, loved ones the surviving loved ones Uh, to see that is uh, that must have been and at Virginia Tech there's going to be a lot of students that were in that building that day that lived because they played dead and that are going to be so traumatized, just as Craig Scott was when he witnessed the death of his sister in Columbine and how, like you said, we don't want to overlook these people because they need support and they need services as well because they witnessed this horrific act. And I think the school realized that, you know, if, if you've been involved with these traumas, that there's a whole trauma team, people rushing right, from all in. over. Yeah. And yeah. and they'll be they'll be helping everybody. Everybody will get services. But the problem is that when the semester's over uh, or the quarter, whatever system they're on, and these and the the summer comes, these folks will be going off. They'll be going home. And you know we get services early on, oftentimes, and we're all a lot is a lot of, is around people initially early on. And then I think Ann and I were talking before the show. What about two and three weeks from now? What about a month from now? And when Scott died, I was, when I was home in New York, I had a big support system. When I went out to the West Coast, to Utah, back to the university, no one knew him, and no one knew I even had a brother that had died, and I felt very isolated and very alone. And it was very difficult at that point. Mm-hmm. What did you do for yourself then, Heidi? Uh, one of the things I did was drop out of school. Now, I don't know if parents want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> my son, my... You know, it's, that's very true. I, I think that the long-term effects is not realized for, long, for a while. Uh, my, my oldest one was in college. He dropped out. Okay. Well, um, Greg and, uh, Scott dropped it. Who, it was in Columbine, dropped out of uh, high, school. high school for a year. Wow. Wow. You know. So, so, you know, people can't understand the depth of the feelings that the bereaved people are going through. A lot of the, uh, I mean, now that there are sensitivity uh, training, if you want to call mm-hmm. it that, um, for teachers and, um, you know, other professionals in the field. But um, I know that, and, and I was very blessed by, by my family and by my friends and, and even by the teachers. It's a small community here. Um, so that all the teachers knew what was, go, what was going on, and they did keep an eye out for my third son. But my oldest boy was in a big college. Mm-hmm, and, you know, like you just said, Heidi, um, was no, nobody knew. So... Um, and, and, you know, at that point, you all know this, you can't even concentrate on a novel and read a novel, let alone a textbook. I couldn't even read the newspaper. I couldn't. Right. The only thing I read in the newspaper, believe it or not, and I, and I think you will, is the obituaries. I was mm-hmm. drawn to reading, looking for other 
young people who die. I'm still kind of fascinated by them. Yeah. And, and I would, um, when I saw something in the paper, um, I would write a note to the parents because many people wrote to me. Well, I love and, that. And, you know, they looked my name up, I guess, in the phone book or whatever or sent it through the, you know, via the, uh, tele- the uh, newspaper. But um, I got many letters from strangers consoling me and you know, offering me encouragement and saying they had been through it and, uh, you know, you will survive and because in the mm-hmm. beginning you don't think you're going to survive. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the siblings and the kids that were there that were shot, it, um, if their friends and it got letters from people? Yeah, that would be great. It, it would be, absolutely. Yeah. And then, of course, we can't forget that there were adults that were killed there. Yeah, know, not uh, right. The, there's people the that have lost their spouses, just as Anna's lost her spouse, but there's yeah. people that have lost their spouses and their fathers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and. It's when it's sudden and tragic like that. It's and especially um, such a tragedy as as that. I think the grieving process is very is more complicated than normal. It's complicated when it's a you know a sudden and tragic death, but when you add the murder and the the mm-hmm. amount of people who were murdered, it's um, I think they're going to have a you know a harder time. And I think it's going to take longer, and people need yes. to be you know, okay with that, you know, and not be too hard on themselves. It's going to take a long time to move forward, move through this. Our National Conference for the Compassionate Friends in July is going to be in Oklahoma City. So we'll be talking about um, um, Bud Welch, whose daughter was killed in the Oklahoma bombing. Um, We'll be talking about how um, Timothy McVeigh, if you remember, and Terry Nichols, who who produced the bomb, um, how... He has met the Ed McVeigh family and how he has been able to find some healing through meeting the family. Wow. And forgiveness. And forgiveness. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. And Craig Scott said the same thing. He said he's he's forgiven the two shooters because he found that his rage and anger was being turned against himself and it was destroying his life. Yeah. Yeah, the anger, when you don't have any place to put that anger, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it turns inward and it right. becomes depression and, and that affects everyone around you. And Bud Welch talks about the fact that he, in the first year, he, be, uh, you know, was drinking too much and became, yeah. uh, he said he thought he might be an alcoholic, but he was able to stop yeah. and, and how it was absolutely destroying him. But one thing I want to say about it, and Bud brought it up too, it was five years. I mean, we're not talking about Five years before he was able to forgive. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And before point. he was able to do that. So yeah, these are not short-term workouts. Oh, here. well, and, and right now, these family members, and I know that you all agree with me, these family members have every right to be so angry at that shooter. He has destroyed their life. He has taken their children. Yes. I mean, and he has no right to do and that. Husbands. Right. And I think they need to be encouraged to express that anger in a constructive mm-hmm. way, That's you know, good. to work through that anger. Because uh, when my son died, I, you know, I did have a lot of anger. And I really wasn't, until I met the right people to help me um, work through those feelings, I wasn't encouraged to express it. It was always, oh, you know, nice girls don't get angry. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I was angry. And um, I was just lucky that I met somebody to help me through it. And, and I would encourage people who have had this experience to get some sort of help, whether it's through counseling, whether it's through group counseling, individual, spiritual counseling. Um, you need to have somebody journey with you through this horrific time. Yeah, and, and groups, compassionate friends, and Absolutely. whatever 
uh, can help you get through this. And we've we've talked about before that you do need to find a grief counselor too, yeah. or somebody who is very familiar with the grief area. I mean, I was blessed that I had my sisters, my family, my brothers, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I had a great support system here. Um, but um, you, you have to be open to it, and you have to be able to talk about it. Well, also I'll have to say that I did, I was a therapist at the time, and I did try to get my kids to go to therapy, and it really didn't work out well for them, did it, Heidi? I mean, no. It was like, no. <laughs> you want to no, talk about that my, a little my bit? My peers were more helpful than a therapist could be at that point. Um, my friends were more helpful. I was 20 yeah. years old. I actually did go to one person, and he was a complete jerk, I have to say. He didn't get it at all. You know, he didn't understand sibling loss, and he didn't understand where I was, and he wanted to talk about my childhood and the day I was born, and I was in crisis at that point, and I needed to talk about the accident and Absolutely. that I didn't want to live at this point. Yeah. He couldn't deal with that. He couldn't deal with the story. So we, it's important to find someone that can, like you said, be with you in your journey, and. And and it gets it, and they can they can handle what you're going to tell them, and can handle your anger. That's right. And let you have it, and then work through it. Yeah, they you have to find somebody who can who can listen to your pain Mm -hmm. because that's what you're expressing. And uh, a lot of people run away from pain. A lot of people don't want to hear it. Right. And uh, they would rather go back to your childhood, and uh, and, you know, the death of your sibling or your child, you know, I mean, it does affect how you grieve, how you've been Mm -hmm. brought up, and all that. But um, you're in crisis, like you said, and you need to be helped right at this moment, and exactly. that's what we need to talk about. Yeah. Exactly, and then later we'll revisit the day I was born after we've, <laughs> after we've gone through what I'm dealing with right now. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. So so if you are in an area where you can't find a grief counselor, if you'll get in touch with us through the blog, we'll try to help you find somebody. Because there, there, are are, amazing, there are amazing people out there. There really are. And there are people that aren't good fits. You just need to find a good, a good fit for you. Or, and it's, and it, you don't have to go to counseling either. If you have a great support system and have people that are there not interrupting your grief, that can be just as helpful. How do you talk about interrupting your grief? Because that's really a good point. <laughs> yeah, I kind of touched on it a little bit. It's, it's, you know, it happens a lot to siblings. When we tell people that we, when I tell people I've had a brother die, people's first response is, wow, that must have been really hard on your parents. Exactly. I, I yeah. can't imagine losing a child. Yeah. And so then you start talking about how horrible it's been for your parents, because it has been. It doesn't acknowledge our loss as siblings, and that we lost a brother that we, I thought Scott was going to be in my life forever. I'm his older sibling by three years. I should have died before him. Yeah. So he was my only yeah. brother. I feel a lot of guilt that I'm still here and he's not. I mean, those kind of things are normal. You know what? That that brings up another point. I remember when my third son um, turned 17. Mm-hmm. He was very wary about going through the same age as mm-hmm. the age that his brother died. Yeah. And once he got out of that year, he said, well, you know, well, I beat Jimmy. You know, I passed 18. I made it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, these are things that you don't, you wouldn't even think would impact them, but it you does. You hear that with siblings so much, it's hard to be the age yeah. that your sibling was. And then all of a sudden, you're older than your older yeah. brother, which is yeah. kind of strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're very interesting points. Parental grief is one of the longest grieving processes that you can experience. Um, and, again, not everybody is sensitive to that. Uh, and it's certainly not... It certainly is a journey, something that does have a beginning and a middle, and it does end, but it ends when you bring your heart and your, your child into your heart. And I tell people, like the longest journey is from the head to the heart. When you first, when the first, the first couple of years, he's constantly in your mind, 
and eventually he moves into your heart, and that's, um, I think, when you can start living again. Right. And what about the sibling journey, Heidi? Um, I would say it's lifelong, absolutely. And one of our things that we do is to keep our, I want to keep Scott's memory alive forever so that people will know him that have not met him, so his nephews and nieces will know him, my children will know him through me. That is one of my roles in life. Yeah, I'm very glad my grandchildren know about Jimmy. Their brother, my uh, my sons um, have told their children, and they know Uncle Jimmy's in heaven and Grandpa, you know, with Grandpa. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things Heidi and I have talked a lot about is the Kubler-Ross stage, the last stage, anger, denial, depression, acceptance, that the acceptance idea is really gone by the boards now, and yes. it is a continuing bonds idea. You want to talk about that a little bit, Heidi? Um, just that we don't have closure. There's no such thing as closure. Closure is for bank accounts, not love accounts. Um, Very good. <laughs> I didn't make it up. I wish I had. Uh, Robert Niemeyer did, and he's, he's a professor at University of Memphis, and I love, he's going to be on our show. I love it, the idea of that. But, you know, we incorporate these people into our lives. When we bury our siblings and our children, we bury them in our hearts, not yeah. in a graveyard somewhere. Maybe their bodies are there, but, they're, but they live on through us, and their memories live on through us. I, I yeah. never liked the word, um, the, the last stage of Kubler-Ross acceptance. Mm-hmm. I used to wor- use, use the word um, accommodation. I used to. Well, I, like I, I knew how to accommodate myself to the pain of the day, and certainly the pain ten years later is a whole lot different than it is in the beginning. But you oh, still, I, I like that idea of the pain of the day, though, and because some days can be really excruciating pain and surprise yeah. you. Especially in the beginning. Yeah. And also, you know, throughout the years, things happen. Right. This Virginia Tech massacre has brought up, like we said in the beginning of the show, a lot of memories and a lot of feelings that, you know, are back in your head again. So, um, you know, need to be dealt with. Right. Absolutely. So. Well, it's getting time to close the show, and I wanted to ask you, and do you have any special advice or thoughts you want to give those folks out there? Um, the only advice that I would... I think the thing that I learned from my journey is that we all help each other and um, to help one another by, by staying in touch with one another. Help yourself by journaling and see, writing down your feelings. Um, there's, things, there's things you can do to help yourself, even though it's hard even getting out of bed. Yeah, it's hard getting um, your shoes on, hard getting out of the shower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. and um, uh, you know, But just not to give up hope that the things even though it's very hard to believe things will get easier. They don't um, they do get better, but um you you'll never forget them and Well, that's one of the good things. The rest that's of our life. worry at first is that we will forget them, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I used to I remember sitting in his bed and and smelling his clothes, you know, just mm-hmm. because his scent was I was afraid of losing it and losing them, but you don't. You think you might. I remember his voice, I remember his, my husband, you know, the the memories we made together over the years. The funny thing is that I always felt with his job it was, you know, so risky that we were making memories for our kids if anything happened to him. But in reality, we were making memories for ourselves when Jimmy died. Mm-hmm. So, so. That's a good point. You were making memories for the whole family. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and just... Um, Stay connected with whoever you can, you know, not not to isolate yourself because that's, I think, the worst thing that can happen. And a lot of times when you express anger uh, and people can't, you know, tolerate it or understand it, um, they tend to shy away from you, so you're isolating yourself more. And, 
and if you don't help yourself um, through verbalizing it, um, you know, you may find yourself alone a couple of years down the road and very bitter and very angry, and that's nowhere to be. And I, I remember that was one of the first things when Jimmy died. I remember thinking to myself, well, I can't help what happened to him, but I can help what happens to me, mm. and I don't want to be angry and bitter, but I was angry and very, you know, very validly, but, um, but you do, you work through it. Well, I wanted to guess on our show said you can either stay bitter or you can get better. Yeah, I've heard that, and that's mm-hmm. true. That's true. Yeah. And bitterness only just, but it, it's something you have to go through. Right. And this is what people have to understand. You just can't shut that up. You know. It's, right. It needs to be acknowledged and yeah. and, and seen that it's legitimate and worked yeah. through yeah. instead of just swept away and minimized. That's and not helpful. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're feeling angry out there, we want to say it's normal, and, but we're saying you, you have, there has to be some movement. You, can, you, you don't, don't want to stay in that place. We don't want you to be no. isolated out there. Well, Anne, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Listen, I, I'd like to give a shout-out okay. they say, to my daughter, Erin, and my sisters, Mary and Ellen, who are listening to this. Oh, great. I'd be in trouble if I didn't do this. <laughs> Hello. And any, all my friends and relatives that are listening. That's great. Hello, and I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed being on on your show. Oh, thank you. We enjoyed having you in. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.